the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety, twists, endings, and all, without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week we're watching series one of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's comedy... of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's comedy series Fleabag. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Fleabag, go away, watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. I have a horrible feeling that I'm a greedy, perverted, selfish, apathetic, cynical, depraved, morally bankrupt woman who can't even call herself a feminist. Well, um, you get all that from your mother. It's often said that there's a fine line between comedy and tragedy, laughter and pain. And if ever a show has mined this scene, it's Fleabag. It's really inappropriate to jog around a graveyard. Why? Flaunting your life. The show tells a story of a depressed, sex-obsessed 20-something woman who really, really enjoys Barack Obama's oratory skills. What are you doing? Nothing. I was watching the news. Really? Yeah. What was he talking about then? Iraq. Right at the start, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag, named after her own real-life childhood nickname, started life as a ten-minute stand-up set, which she wrote while struggling to find work as an actress after graduating from RADA. This stand-up set soon morphed into an award-winning one-woman play, which became the hit of the 2013 Edinburgh Fringe, and described by one critic as astoundingly filthy. I'm not obsessed with sex. I just can't stop thinking about it. Unsurprisingly, TV soon came knocking, with BBC Three commissioning a six-part series featuring a stellar supporting cast, including Bill Patterson, Hugh Dennis, and a joyfully cast-against type Olivia Colman as Fleabag's vile stepmother. Mm. I mean, I don't need to tell you, but your father is a deeply sexual man. No, you don't. Just did. Knew it. Fleabag was an immediate critical hit. The series quickly drew the perhaps obvious comparisons to Bridget Jones's Diary and HBO's Girls, but was also memorably described by The Guardian's Stuart Heritage as a really, 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 really bleak version of Miranda. I'm sorry you had to hear that, but you did have to hear it. The show has gone on to garner numerous award nominations, as well as winning two Royal Society Television Awards for its writer and star. This is my favourite bit. And, following its premiere on Amazon in the US, Fleabag has also won acclaim from American audiences and critics, with The Hollywood Reporter's Tim Goodman heralding Wallabridge as a distinctive new voice on television. Oh, God, I'm chuffed to my boots. On top of all that, beyond all the showbiz plaudits, the show has won praise for its realistic portrayal of mental health issues. People make mistakes. That's why they put rubbers on the ends of pencils. So, with a second series shooting later this year, how does Fleabag measure up to the hype? When you get cold? Nah, I got really hairy nipples. 
So later in the show, we'll be looking at the art of breaking the fourth wall in TV and movies. But first, joining me to discuss the whole of Fleabag, as someone who wishes they could play bass like Flea, it's Andy Goulding, which leaves the only possible introduction to Rachel Burnett to have something to do with a bag. Which is true, she carries a bag. Rachel, <laughs> dig me out of this hole. Are you, a, are you a fan of this kind of dark comedy? Um, is it a dark comedy? There you go. There's a, that's a better question. I've just thought that's a better okay. question. It is a better question. It and it is. Ooh, there we go. In which case, are you a fan is. of it? <laughs> um, I'm not normally. I like to laugh at my comedies. I don't like to feel too challenged, mm-hmm. if I'm honest, because yeah. I'm quite a dark person. And I do have mental health issues myself, so I'm always quite wary about dark comedy, because that, that line between laughter and crying is so mm. fine. And I'm very quick to go over that line. So I'm, I think if we hadn't have chosen to do this for sport, I may not have watched it. And I would have been a lesser person because of it. I think this is a rather astounding piece of television. Well, let's, let's dig a touch deeper there. Astounding. That's, that's, quite, that's quite phenomenal, considering you weren't perhaps looking forward to watching it. No. No, I, it was a hard watch as well. For a comedy, mm-hmm. I did laugh, but I also cried a lot. Mm. A lot. And I think as a woman as well, I'm really glad that as a spoiler team, we do have male and female voices on this because I think it's important to get both gender yeah. talking about this. And for me, even though my housemate watched two episodes and said, oh, I've seen all this before, for me, I felt like I'd never seen this before. I mean, I've never seen Girls because I don't have like anything special TV package-wise, so I've never been able to watch it. So it might be similar to Girls, I don't know. But for me, this is the first time I've ever seen women depicted in... Yes, the rather filthy way that we can be, this like less than feminine, quite potty mouthed, very honest, very raw. It was just refreshing, but also kind of not. It was it really toyed with my emotions a lot. And I thought that was quite special. The cover, the artwork to this, when you when you put it on your screen, is um, a woman in distress with mascara running down her face. It doesn't scream a bundle of laughs at you, does it? No, it doesn't. But it neither should it. I mean, if you come to this expecting a bundle of laughs, then uh, you're going to either be disappointed or possibly even horrified. But I, I think this is a terrific series. Uh, I didn't realise quite how terrific until the second time I watched it through. I had a bit of a funny experience with it, because the first time I knew we were doing this and I knew it was all on the BBC iPlayer at the time. And one morning I got up, in fact I'd, I'd stayed over at Rachel's house, and uh, that morning for no reason that I could put my finger on at all, I had a massive, massive panic attack. And it was like, it, I, I didn't know where it had come from. I hadn't had anything like it for ages. And I was just, I was shaking, I was crying, I was, I, I couldn't stop. Rachel helped me through it, talked me down. And then I had to walk down the hill and get on the bus and have an hour and a quarter journey home. Where I just got and wrapped myself up in a big duvet. And I thought, right, I'll watch Fleabag, which I, I hadn't seen that cover. Art. I didn't know what I was letting myself in for, really. And it really, I watched it all back to back and it really just hit me on a gut level and, and riveted me. But I was I was reeling so much after it as well that I couldn't quite appreciate how superb it was. So after, like about a month later, I watched it through a second time and that allowed for a more kind of analytical approach. And then I, I knew what to expect and I was more myself. And I really got it that second time. I really think it's... It's an amazing piece of TV. Mm. I mean, Andy said you watched it there all at once, Rachel, did you? No, I didn't. I watched two episodes with my housemate. Mm-hmm. And I could tell he wasn't getting anything out of it. And so, and I hate doing that. I hate being sat next to somebody mm-hmm. when you're really getting into something and they're really not. It's the worst thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, right, I'm going to have to watch this when I'm on my own. And it was another few weeks before I could watch them. And I did end up watching all the, the other four back to back as well. 
And as a sort of bookend to your experience, um, you know, I'm going through something at the moment as a 40-year-old woman and I cry very easily. <laughs> and um, so I had a similar reaction. It was a gut reaction. Yeah. It was like when you get to... Yeah, when you get into the third, fourth episode, and then it's starting to ramp up with the with the real depth of what's going on, it's getting past the sort of the the very flirty stuff that was on the top, and you're getting right to the meat of it, and you're thinking, God, this is really powerful. This is really raw, and authentic, and moving, and powerful. And I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to watch this without it really affecting me. But also, you can't look away. It's yeah. like I have to know what happens next. Mm. So I just watched all four in floods of tears, <laughs> absolute floods, <gasps> you know, the proper kind of hyperventilating sobbing, but absolutely wonderful. And I would encourage anybody to watch it. Do brace yourself. Don't watch it if you're feeling particularly fragile. But um, it's just so powerful and so, I think, genuinely important as a piece of TV. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, exactly the same. Ex- well, not exactly the same. Cause I went in your house, but a similar experience in that. Yeah, I watched the first two episodes of my wife, and again, this, this thing when you're watching something and they're not into it, and you're like, no, no, this is going to ruin it for me. So, right, okay, and I'll watch this separately. And again, four episodes on the trot. You know, as I was, I, I get up early in the morning, but I still, you know, I stayed up till like one o'clock in the morning to to get this done because there was no way after one of these episodes finished, are you thinking? Well, I'm not going to sleep if I don't if I don't find out what goes on. And then you get to the end of it, and you know you perhaps don't sleep anyway. It's still, you, think, you think you're still rattling around your head, yeah. and that is just how good it is. These the, these are the things I think that we we've learned certainly along the way that if they stay with you, mm. uh, you know, then then they're really you know they're worth it. They're worth it. I mean, it's obviously a good vision from from people that that went to see the the, the play up at Edinburgh and said, you know, we can do something with this. Mm. Um, I mean, when when I saw that it was a play. Because it's just, you know, I don't go to the theatre, and I thought, well, how does that, how does that work? And then actually, like, a light, a light bulb went on above my head like a cartoon, mm-hmm. and it was very much, oh yeah, hang on, now. she breaks the fourth wall all the time and mm-hmm. talks like you would in a play, like she yeah, does yeah. in the play and talks to the audience like that. And mm-hmm. you think, oh, oh, hang on a minute, I was a bit daft there. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you, I think it, I think it's done in a way that it's, it's not like often when they break the fourth wall. I'm going to talk about this more later in this show, but obviously when they, they break the fourth wall, sometimes they're looking to push that and go, look how clever we're being, we're breaking the fourth wall. And I think this. Even though it's it's done very openly, you don't feel like it's stepping out of reality either. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is so good at, at doing that. And the way she flits between talking to the audience and talking to the uh, the characters in the scene, I mean, some of it is so... The timing is so dead on that it's like, almost like a kind of old vaudeville routine. There's this great bit where she's talking to her sister and she's, she's told us about how she knows that she's going to come on her period when she tries something different and she's noticed she's got plaits in her hair, and uh, she asks her sister, are you coming on your period? And she says, uh, why do you ask? And she turns to the camera and says, the plaits, to the audience. <laughs> and then she turns back and says, no reason. And then her sister <laughs> says, say it, and she says, the plaits. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just really beautifully done. Mm. Really, it brings us into her mindset and her world, and and yeah, it's used really movingly in the last episode. There's a big sort of reveal in the last episode that kind of her world kind of falls apart and as soon as it happens straight away she looks out at the audience as if we're there to support her but obviously we can't mm. give her that it says a lot about fourth wall breaking and how it's a, it is a one-way thing and and yet it's still it's still very realistic so I, I think the fact that you you missed that connection Paul is more a comment on the the good work that 
Well, yes, I mean, that's what I thought. I thought that it was their quality rather than my daftness. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I mean, you mentioned their uh, sister, and let's, br- let's bring in some other, other characters now as well, because I think, uh, like we said at the top, it's a, it's, a, it's a stellar cast. And actually, I mean, a sister there is uh, Sean Clifford. I mean, there's bound to be something I've seen her in that I just don't, I, I, I know her from somewhere. But she's so. She's so good, you know, as good yeah. as as good as Fleabag is. She's so good in that sister role, and so oh. it's just really authentic for me. Mm. And actually, you probably haven't seen her in anything. She's been four other things apart from this, which shocks me mm. because yeah. she's so talented, and she just seems so experienced. I mean, against somebody like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's just so engaging, so captivating, I am a bit in love with her, I'll warn you now. <laughs> um, that you think you wouldn't care about anybody else, you wouldn't listen to anybody else, but when they're together. And I have a sister, an older sister, and that relationship they have, I'm not saying it's like our relationship, I've never <laughs> been that mean to my sister, <laughs> but that there is deep love between them, and that absolutely comes through as well. And I, I was so moved by that sisterly relationship between them, and that can only happen with two fantastic performances that are on the same level, and they were. I thought Sean Clifford was just fantastic. Yeah, I've got that same thing down there. I've got a line there that says my favourite scenes were mostly between the two sisters. Mm. And I think like even more than just like individual performances, they convinced so much as sisters. Yeah. you could believe the, that they were. Phoebe Wellbridge obviously has the uh, the bulk of the work to do in this series, but Sean Clifford's role I think is arguably an even more demanding role mm. because it's she's sort of the the straight the straight one, isn't she? But yeah. she's she like a lot of the humour, the mind from that is is so brilliantly done with so so little. She she gives so little, mm. and yet she gives so much in the understated way that she puts the humour across. So, I mean, she's such a repressed character. She's so locked in, and you can you can see that her sisters that if she hadn't have got married to Martin, if she hadn't have ended up with children, nothing else, she would be just like her sister. Yeah, she has got actually quite strong sexual urges that aren't being met. So they are extremely similar, and you can see her almost looking at her sister, thinking, "I kind of wish that I could say that, but I don't either. And I've got to keep it buttoned." And she's so repressed. But there's some really, really beautiful moments. There's a moment where it's come out about Martin trying to kiss her, so there's a bit of, Ugh. and then she gets in the bed and they spoon, yeah. and oh, I just. My heart almost broke. I was like, oh. Well, it's not just so that. She actually grabs her hand and brings it around, doesn't I know. she? I was like, oh. It was just so beautiful. I was like, oh. You know, those two girls, just amazing. There was one, one moment between them as well, which really kind of uh, epitomised the, the sort of shift in tone of the whole series for me. It's when they're in the graveyard and uh, there's this, this guy who's, who's crying really openly at a grave. And Claire says, oh, it's really sad. And, and Fleabag says, oh, no, he comes here every day. He's at a different grave every day. And then Claire just says, you, you come here every day? And there's that, it, it's, it's such a, it brings it right down to that dark thing. And you realise we're not seeing every part of her life in this. And, yeah, she, you don't know, I laughed at that to start with. And then... Yeah, and then sort of pulled back from it almost, and that epitomises the whole thing for me. I think you do that a lot. I think you go through it going, ah, oh, hang on, mm. <laughs> no, hang yeah. on, that's not funny. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, there are some genuinely funny moments as well. Like oh, when yeah. she gets stung, yeah. stung by the wasp, oh, <laughs> and she has I've to. That down. It, it's a, I know, me too. And it's a silent, it's a silent retreat. So she has to write it on the blackboard, <laughs> and it's just, it, it's just, you know, outlandishly funny in 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 in, in that situation as well. Really, it was really good. Um, I mean, other characters, and we'll get to Olivia Coleman. We'll get to her, but we'll, we'll wait. Mm-hmm. We'll tease that in. She's <laughs> worth the wait. Hugh, I mean, Hugh Dennis. Talk to me about Hugh Dennis. I, I was when I first saw him on TV. I thought, oh, 
not again. He, I, I thought I, I like him. I like him a lot. I mean, back back from the nineties when I when I was into the Mary Whitehouse yeah. experience for heaven's sake. Um, so I really like him. He's part he's part of my fabric of watching TV and TV comedy. Against my better judgment, I still quite like the Now Show on Radio Four. But when I saw him, I just thought he's overused. Will I be able to lose the the, the history I've got with him in other things? And actually, he, he's, he's proved himself to be the talent he is, hasn't he? You can, yeah. you can understand why they cast him in I this. thought this was a really clever piece of casting. And when I first watched it, I wasn't obviously I wasn't expecting that character to come back because he only pops up three times, doesn't he, at key moments. Mm. But he's in that first episode and I saw that scene and I thought, yeah, that was a good scene and he was good. But I thought, why did they cast such a famous person? I found that distracting. But then when he comes back in the fourth episode... I thought, right, now I know exactly why. He has that incredible speech, that that brilliant scene that, that they share together where they smoke the cigarette. And that was the moment the first time round where I thought, OK, this is really something special. And he became almost kind of the heart of it for me. Those three scenes, when you look back over them, having seen it once already, it just it, it really is the heart of it. It really feels like there's, there's some comfort in there. It also speaks a lot about Phoebe Wildbridge's subtlety in writing because that that moment where they're at the silent retreat and they talk to each other, there's clear parallels between them, but a, a less subtle writer would have made it... They would have made him a male version of her, whereas what we get here is their situations are comparable but not identical, and in their similarities they find some level of, of strange relationship, don't they, together? Yeah. So I, th- I thought, by the end of it, I thought, I'm really glad they cast you, Dennis, mm. because he was just great. I think that was the moment that I started crying, and I don't think I stopped <laughs> after that, because <laughs> it was really moving. And I, I agree, Mary Whitehouse experience was, was my childhood, yeah. <laughs> or my teenage years at least, and I loved you, Dennis. And then through the years, outnumbered and everything else. And it did jar me a little bit at the start. I was like, oh, but actually, brilliant. The moment where she, she sort of does a little zip across her mouth, like, I can't talk. But then she does say, I just want to cry all the time. Yeah. And which I can really relate to. And I thought, she needs to tell that truth to someone. And she's told it to him. And I just, oh, it was just so moving. And that was it for me. I'm like, right, I'm just going to, I'll start crying now and I'll just keep going until it's finished. And I did. Like, a, there's this little thing that you, Dennis, does where he's, he's smoking the cigarette and then he goes, no, I don't want that. And he throws it away. And then he talks a bit more, and then immediately he asks for another one. He take and it's there's there's that that's the sort of that sort of level of of subtlety and parallel in their kind of self destructive uh, attitudes, isn't it? It's it's so so clever. Mm. Uh, right, so we'll take a break now. Um, so we, well, you can you can listen to the advert we're going to play uh, or the or the trail, um, but also you can probably Google the Mary Whitehouse experience because most of you will more than likely be too young for it. Um, but do do look look it out. I think it's, I think. The Raid BBC Radio iPlayer still sometimes plays some of them out, yeah. uh, and I can do them word for word. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it the one about Vidal Sassoon? You remember yeah, that one? Yeah. Vidal. Wonderful. Sassoon. So later on, Andy is going to be taking a look at the fourth wall breaking in movies and TV shows, and we'll be talking more about Fleabag. That's all after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. 
Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including Britty Britty Bang Bang, One Man's Attempt to Understand His Country, by Fleabag's Hugh Dennis. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help keep producer Johnny supplied with Mrs Brown's boys DVDs. Now, back to the show. Now, I would ask you all to leave your genitals at the door and bring your minds. So welcome back to Spoiler, where we are discussing Fleabag. Now, Fleabag famously makes great use of fourth wall breaking. But in the wrong hands, this technique can undermine the audience suspension of disbelief and compromise the drama unfolding on screen. Andy's been taking a look at some great and some not so great examples of breaking the fourth wall. In John Bolton's 1951 biopic, The Magic Box, Robert Donat portrays William Freeze Green, the inventor of one of the earliest working cinematic cameras. In one pivotal scene, Freeze Green manages to project moving images of Hyde Park onto a screen he's created by hanging up a large bedsheet. Excited by his achievement, he rushes out into the street and drags in a passing policeman to whom he shows the film. Come quickly, come on, come and see! Now, just a minute, what is all this? No, no, come and see, I've got something to show you. Something I've done, you must come and see! Dumbfounded, the policeman walks up to the hanging bedsheet and looks behind it, as if he expects to find all of Hyde Park and its afternoon visitors hidden there. That was Hyde Park. I recognised her. Where's it come from? Where's it gone to? It's all here! Here, look! Like a magic lamp. But it moved. Yes, it moved, didn't it? <laughs> this moment has echoes of the possibly apocryphal but well-known story of the Lumiere Brothers' 1895 film of a train arriving at a station and how it caused audiences to run to the back of the screening room in fear. What both the Lumiere Brothers' audience and Bolting's fictional policemen were unaware of at this early stage in cinema history was the fourth wall, a convention originating in theatre whereby an imagined, invisible barrier separates the audience from the world on stage while allowing them to still witness the goings-on in that world. In realistic plays, this fourth wall remains unacknowledged and unbroken, but writers soon realise they can play with this convention by having an audience who believes themselves to be safely at one remove from the action on stage suddenly be addressed directly or even made an integral part of the action such as in J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, when Peter urges everyone who believes in fairies to clap their hands in an effort to revive the dying Tinkerbell. In theatre, the fourth wall is a more fragile concept. The audience knows that there's no actual barrier between themselves and the actors, and while a character in a play can break narrative conventions and acknowledge the audience at any time, a spectator could just as easily break with the conventions of etiquette and intrude upon the stage shattering the illusion held in place only by a communal investment in a theatrical conceit. But when the fourth wall is broken in cinema, the power lies entirely with the characters on screen. Here, the fourth wall is tangible. You could get up and knock on it and hear the ting-ting-ting of that barrier that prevents you entering the world on screen. The characters can still look us in the eye, speak as if they're addressing us directly, but they're oblivious to our own interruptions. This audience limitation was overcome by Buster Keaton's projectionist character in 1924's Sherlock Jr. as, in one of cinema's greatest magic tricks, he wanders up the aisle and steps through the screen and into the film. Decades later, Woody Allen subverted this moment in The Purple Rose of Cairo, in which a character in a film steps down from the screen to meet a real-world patron of the cinema in which his film is playing. I gotta speak to you. Oh my god! It's an old sport. You're on the wrong side. Tom, get back here! 
In both these cases, the fantasy of breaking the fourth wall is acknowledged, but the actual fourth wall between the film and the viewers is respected. Other early comedy stars were less respectful of convention. When frustrated by Stan Laurel's persistent ability to land them both in another fine mess, Oliver Hardy would regularly glance in exasperation at the audience, searching for sympathy with his plight. Well, here's another nice mess you've gotten me into. It was only so long until the unmitigated anarchy of the Marx Brothers caused damage to the reality buffer too. With Groucho Marx, during a farcical scene in 1932's Horse Feathers, telling audiences... I've got to stay here, but there's no reason why you folks shouldn't go out into the lobby till this thing blows over. Seems like time. Because of the outlandish nature of this cinematic trick, Fourth wall breaking has largely been consigned to comedy films like Woody Allen's Annie Hall or John Hughes's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. In both films, the protagonist talks directly to the audience. Allen's Alvy Singer grants us access to the inner workings of his mind, a world where chronology means nothing and an argument about the philosopher Marshall McLuhan can be won by suddenly bringing out McLuhan himself to denounce your opponent's viewpoint. I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan will have a great deal of validity. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, that's funny because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so, yeah, just let me, let me, let me, come over here a second. Oh, Tell I, heard, I heard what you were saying. You, you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong. Alvi acknowledges the fiction prominently by sighing. Boy, if life were only like this. While Alan breaks the fourth wall to show his character's inability to succeed in the comparatively restrictive reality, Matthew Broderick's Ferris Bueller knows only one reality, that where he is all-powerful. Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. A popular, resourceful and cocky teen who orchestrates an epic day of school for himself and his friends simply because he fancies her, Bueller talks to us without the need for logical adjustments. Of course we're interested in him and his world, and it is his world. A, you can never go too far. B, if I'm going to get busted, it is not going to be by a guy like that. After the credits have rolled at the end of the film, he even reappears on screen to move on any loitering cinema patrons. It's over. Go home. But can fourth wall breaking succeed in a more serious context, or does it undermine the gravity of the subject matter? Certainly this can be the case. The TV series Boston Legal began life as a comedy drama show about lawyers, which often touched on tough subject matter, including a very powerful season one finale, in which a mentally challenged death row inmate is defended by James Spader's attorney, Alan Shaw. Unfortunately, the credibility of this episode and future installments was somewhat devalued when the series began to include instances of prominent fourth wall breaking, with lines such as, Don't fall for her, Alan, she's just a guest star characters holding up cue cards for each other, and even, in one truly dire moment, a particular character singing along with the show's opening theme tune. In a series that attempted to deal seriously with issues of rape, abortion and murder, this constant self-referencing did not sit well at all. But that's not to say that fourth wall breaking can't be a very powerful tool in serious drama. In the case of Boston Legal, the device arguably failed because the hole between realities was punched in such a clumsy way that all the reality drained down. If the hole in the wall is knocked through more artfully, it instead allows the fiction of the world behind the screen to seep into our reality. The worlds become meshed and consequently our relationships with the characters and events become closer. 
A good example of fourth wall breaking used to strong dramatic effect is Lewis Gilbert's 1966 film Alfie, starring Michael Caine as a womanising Cockney chauffeur. My name is... Alfie! With his casual and sometimes cruel treatment of a series of women, Alfie could be a hard character to feel positive towards, but Bill Norton's script has Alfie talk directly to the audience, immediately asking if we're all settled in before proceeding with the story. Well, you all settled in? Right, we can begin. Alfie's frequent asides allow him to work the same charms on the viewers as he does on women, giving us a greater understanding of how his particular lifestyle works. It also plays as a forerunner for the godlike narcissism of Ferris Bueller, as no other characters are privy to Alfie's digressions from the film's reality, suggesting that he views the world as a film in which he is the star. I suppose you think you're going to see the bleeding titles now? Well, you're not, so you can all relax. But when an affair with one of his friend's wives leads to a traumatic illegal abortion, the foundations of Alfie's world are shaken. During these sequences, the fourth wall breaking disappears, as Alfie is no longer a hero in his own eyes, and thus he loses his connection with his imagined audience. When he does eventually speak to us at the film's end, it is famously to ask the question, What's it all about? Know what I mean? Alfie no longer just wants to show off his lifestyle, He's genuinely appealing to us for advice on how to get by in a world whose rules he no longer understands. But of course, as we've already established, the characters on the screen are immune to our interruptions, and so Alfie is left to wander the streets in his newfound uncertainty with just a stray dog as a companion. Fourth wall breaking can also be done with greater subtlety that retains the plausibility of the on-screen reality while giving a momentary wink to its fictional basis. In Billy Wilder's The Seven Year Itch, would-be philanderer Richard Sherman, played by Tom Yule, is confronted by a friend who wants to know who the blonde in his kitchen is. He replies, Oh, wouldn't you like to know? Maybe it's Marilyn Monroe. The joke, of course, is that the blonde in the kitchen is a nameless character known only as the girl, who happens to be played by Marilyn Monroe. The laugh derives from the acknowledgement of the fiction, and yet the reality is not shattered, since Monroe is an actress and it's perfectly plausible that she exists as such in the film's reality. The same joke was used earlier in Howard Hawks' His Girl Friday, in which Cary Grant's reporter describes a character named Bruce as looking like that fellow in the movies, Ralph Bellamy. Guess who plays the role of Bruce? My favourite example of this kind of fourth wall breaking is in the sitcom Frasier. Kelsey Grammer first played the role of Seattle psychiatrist Frasier Crane in the sitcom Cheers. His first appearance was in the episode Rebound, which aired in 1984. The character was so popular that he was given his own successful spin-off series. In the 2004 episode, Caught in the Act, Frasier crosses paths with his ex-wife, a children's entertainer who plays the role of a character called Nanny G. If you knew how bored I am being Nanny G. How trapped I feel. You have a wonderful career. But nothing ever changes. Do you have any idea what it's like to play the same character for 20 years? Grandma's response is appropriately and hilariously non-committal. Again, the conversation is entirely plausible within the storyline, and yet the audience's enthusiastic reaction acknowledges the implication. Frazier has left the building. Fourth wall breaking can be a fun lapse into self-conscious fiction, as in the films of Mel Brooks, or, if used carefully and appropriately, a dramatic enhancement or conduit for a serious message, as in Michael Haneke's screen violence critiquing funny games. But now that it is such a well-worn tradition, it is hard to achieve the same impact on an audience who are over-familiar with the trick, 
The convention breaker has become a convention itself. Nevertheless, fourth wall breaking is a joy to experience for the first time, and it's a pleasure to see an audience unfamiliar with such narrative devices be surprised and delighted by it. When fourth wall breaking was prominently used in the recent Marvel superhero film Deadpool, reaction was ecstatic, perhaps because such tricks have rarely been used within the subgenre before, and seemed entirely new to the core demographic. Okay, let's pro-con this superhero thing. Pro! They pull down a gaggle of ass. Local dry cleaning discounts, lucrative film deals, both origin stories and larger ensemble team movies. Con, they're all lame-ass teacher's pets. You know I can hear you. Wasn't talking to you. I was talking to them. Consequently, Deadpool has been wildly overrated and branded by many as revolutionary. While it is great to see fourth wall breaking remains a source of wonderment, I would advise Deadpool fans to take a look at the long and rich heritage that led to this film. Without wanting to be a party pooper, I think it's important to realise that Deadpool is only as revolutionary as Lovejoy. Well, thanks for that, Andy. And also, that was always a welcome um, reference to Lovejoy. <laughs> um, right, so uh, we're talking about Fleabag, and uh, we're, we're, let's pick up, I suppose, where we where we left off a little bit earlier. We're talking about other characters in this. You know, we, we, we've exclaimed just how good, um, well, well, <laughs> let's face it, everyone is. Uh, but we need to get to the end. So, <laughs> um, so Olivia Coleman. Um, Wow, I mean, it's, I think we said at the beginning that you know it's, it's against type. I think with with, with this character, yeah. uh, but I think she's always had that glint in her eye. That boy, <laughs> and boy, can she do it? She loved doing <laughs> oh, it, didn't yeah. she? She yeah. loved it. You could tell. I she mean, was I, relishing it. I and I, I hated her. Oh, I, I did. Mean, really hated her. I really want to slap her around the face. Mm. I really, really. Did. I'm not a slapping person, but yeah, I really want to slap her but, around the face. But, but and but, when she slapped her, I was like, oh, oh, how dare you? How dare you? That should be the other way around. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I was livid with her, absolutely livid. Yeah, she's properly disgusting. Yeah. Well, I've only got one note down here for Olivia Coleman. It's the same note I've got for Bill Patterson. It's just, hooray! (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I thought when both of them came on the screen. I didn't know either of them were going to be in there. That first episode where she went round to the house and... Yeah, Bill Patterson was the one who answered the door. I was like, "Yes," <laughs> and he was brilliant, yes, wasn't he, he was as well? Brilliant. He in the, in the, another understated role. Yeah. He was great, and it really it really exemplified for me a very difficult relationship between a, a, a father and a daughter, and you know him just wanting really just wanting a quiet life, mm. and you know he's, he's he's settled down with this horror, and you know he just <laughs> he knows that if, if, if Fleabag comes around every time that happens, then the, the, you know there's there's going to be trouble after mm. it. As, as a character, not as a performance of Bill Patterson, but as a character, he was again. It's just I was, I was disappointed. I was really disappointed in him. Yeah. So you could you could do a lot better him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but this is again this is in the right sense. just because that's how humans would behave. Yeah. Rubbishly. Um, there was one moment where he sort of, not redeemed himself, but you saw a little bit of what they should be. If, if that stepmother wasn't there, mm. the five second rule. Yeah. When he dropped the things on the floor, and he was worried that the stepmother was going to come in. And you think, God, you're just as scared of her as everyone else is. Mm. And Phoebe um, Waller-Bridge's character just put an egg in her mouth. And five, five second rule. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, first of all, he was d- pretended to be disgusted. And then he had one as well and they laughed. Yeah. And I thought, that's your relationship. That's what it should be. And I felt really sad that it wasn't, you know, because it should be. But he obviously doesn't know how to talk to her. The stepmother, God knows what she said to him about her mm. and how he should behave around her and everything else because he's so under the thumb. And it's just a bit tragic, really. He should have not even bothered to get together with anyone else. He should have just stayed true to his girls. Because when they start talking about the mum, and she tr- oh, she did that horrible thing of going, oh, yes, I have that. 
And it's like, no, you don't, just stay out of it. You've got yeah. nothing to do with this. Just stay out of it. And, oh, God. But isn't that brilliant that mm. I, even now, I'm gritting my teeth about yeah, it. Yeah, and I'll ha- cheerfully smack around the <laughs> <laughs> Well, you imagine being there, don't you? And it's that horrible thing where someone doesn't quite do enough to yeah. justify you actually like yelling at them yeah. or anything. But you just, oh, I'm frustrated even thinking about it. <laughs> at the moment when um, Fleabag shows up at the exhibition, and she puts a sticker on her and gives her the champagne glasses. And I'm like, what the yeah. I know, I know, I know. You know, oh, for goodness sake. It was the same. So and, then she's, and then she still made a clean-up after she dropped the tray. I know. I was, oh, no, 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 say no, no say no. <laughs> no. I was like, just walk out, just walk out. But it's just me shouting at the screen then, obviously. No, no, but again, again, this, I mean, this is it. If you look at some some Twitter hashtags, which I've, I've, I've done, um, and people, I mean, people on there are claiming, saying, Fleabag, this is my life, this is my life. This is, I mean, it's, 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 the, it's the realism in it. Yeah. And uh, I think there was a fellow, let me just get this bit of paper here that says, yes, Hugh Fullerton writing in the Radio Times. And the Radio Times is not just for Christmas, by the way. <laughs> um, he made a really good point that the, the comedic events that happen in a normal sitcom, it restarts, doesn't it? it? Restarts. So you know, horrid, horrid things happen, and they're they're, they're they're funny, horrid things, but it has no cause and effect. Here, you see the actual effect of of albeit sometimes funny things happening, or darkly funny things happening, or just things happening, and you see the effect of it, and you see the effect on on you know Fleabag's mental health, but but not only that, everyone around mm. and the way it affects. Everybody. I think that realism is is there even in like the larger than life characters. Like there's there's well there's only one character I'd really think was particularly larger than life, and that is uh, you say just credit it as Bus Rodent. Yes. <laughs> the, the large teeth toothed man that she meets on the bus. Bus Rodent. And uh, and he's like I'm glad they used him sparingly because I think it worked really well. Yeah. There's a there's a moment after they have sex when he asks her how it was and then then there's a, quite a sad moment which is one of the last moments we see him where he says look you don't go through life with teeth like this and not know when someone's pretending and that like that humanizes him right at the last minute and sort of casts all that you've seen before in a different light didn't you? i thought he was perhaps the most likable character yeah. in the whole thing mm. and that that line just just did it for me. So the second time when I came around to it, I could see that his, what seemed like a larger-than-life character was just his insecurities manifesting themselves in this awkward inability to really connect with people and mm. overcompensating in the, in the things he did and said. Mm. I mean, we, we talked there about the, the consequences of everything. I mean, did it ever... I mean, you know, we're all full of praise for this and we all know that we loved it. Did it ever feel to you that it was getting a, too unrealistic? That sometimes, you know, you think, well, could all this happen to one person? Is it, did, did it ever push it? I don't know. I think, I mean, I can't relate to that sort of character too much. She's so sexually, um, you know, adventurous and, and, and really irresponsible with it as well. Yes. But, I, you know, there are women out there like that. I'm not going to name names, but I know one that is like that. <laughs> and, um, and, and a lovely, lovely woman, but just she had lots of problems in her child and it's manifested itself as this very sexually ambitious and very irresponsible thing. That's the only part of her that is irresponsible, but it is a big part of her. Yeah. So that part did actually ring true with me. And, you know, women don't talk about this that much, that they have this kind of irresponsible thing. Women are supposed to be mature and sensible and reasonable and, you know, it's supposed to be the men that go that go out and, you know, sow their oats, as it were. <laughs> but, you know, women are just as mucked up as anyone else. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I, I really love that about this, is the fact that women could be dirty and filthy and wrong about something and irresponsible and stupid and and nasty and 
you know, there were so many things I just thought, I don't see women like this in comedies or in dramas normally. Normally they're not put on a pedestal exactly, but they're either really nasty women and they're bitches Mm -hmm. or they're really virtuous women and they're mothers and, you know, beautiful girlfriends or whatever. And there's never a nice ambiguous kind of, you know... And she is that, and she's she's almost to me, not the every woman. I don't I don't think she's that, but she encapsulates so many so many aspects of being a woman, and so does her sister. And I think between the two of them, I think between Claire and Fleabag, is every woman is there is a spectrum between the two of them, and you're in there somewhere. Um, I'm most like Boo, I think, because I love my <laughs> guinea pigs, and um, and, um, well, and she's you, really. Would you kind. necessarily open up a cafe? If I did, I wouldn't do the decor like that. I must admit, I spent the whole time going, oh, see, now you could do that, but you could do it a bit different. And so I was like trying to mend their cafe while I was watching it. <laughs> and would it be four guinea pigs or just... <laughs> <laughs> It'll happen. It will happen. Shoreditch is just about to open one up. Um, I mean, brilliantly bringing up uh, Boo there, Rachel, because, uh, I mean, that, that's yeah, that's that's the, the, the key character, the character we haven't necessarily uh, talked about yet, but the the key really to to the ending mm. and I mean, I mean like me were you all the way through apart from when you find out what happens at the end no matter what you're still really on fleabag side aren't you mm. you know and you sort of think well oh, yeah you know you're with this person and that did you see it coming is, is I'm, I'm gonna ask you did you did you see that ending coming I didn't until really near the end I think because there was so much love between boo and fleabag and because all the way through it you only saw bits of them together and it was always positive and she seemed to be like the little angel on Fleabag's shoulder all the time and, and always, she was always very accepting of Fleabag as well and like I loved the little story about the hamster and the rubber and and Boo's immediate response was, oh, but he needs help. And I thought, oh, God, that would so be my response. I'm so that person. <laughs> I did think and, of you as yeah, well. No. <laughs> it's funny because I thought, yeah, she's me. And um, and she was so accepting, so lovely. And when Fleabag wanted to have a go at herself and she took her coat and came back in as herself, go on, then have a go. And I thought, God, you're so great. And I thought, oh, they're so lovely. This is the one thing. I can see why she's so upset about her killing herself. But I didn't for one minute think she's the reason that she did it. I didn't get. I don't think she did try to kill herself. I think she just. It was. It gone too far. She tried to hurt herself badly enough that this guy would come to her again and look after her. Mm. But no, I didn't really. Maybe it was me not wanting that to be the truth, mm. and maybe I purposefully didn't pay attention to those little clues because I didn't want that to be the truth. Yeah, I I got it. I got it in the third episode when uh, I think she just she explains it a few times to people what happened to Boo. I think it was probably the second time she repeats it and she keeps saying he slept with someone. And I thought that that sort of vagueness tipped me off to it. Uh, so when when it came as like the twist at the end, I wasn't I wasn't shocked, but I didn't I also didn't think that undermines it or that. I, I, didn't, no. I don't think it's meant to be a big kind of oh surprise. Mm. I think if, if even if you expect it's coming, mm. it's still it's still where the narrative is going. It's still what ties Definitely. it all off. And don't you think that makes me more boo than ever because I totally didn't see that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't think that as boo, I would never expect that she could do that to me. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think I do always try and see the good in people, which boo always did as well. Yeah. So I, even when she first started the first episode, I thought, God, you're so unlikable. You're so awful, but actually, there's a reason you're like this. It's fine. We'll find out the reason you're like that. And I just kept giving her all this all this time to explain why she was so dislikable. She made a comment about her sister looking great in clothes, but she's anorexic. I thought, oh, <laughs> yeah. that's a cervix. But I thought, no, it's okay. There's a reason. There's a reason. So I just kept doing the boo thing and kept thinking, it's okay. There's a reason you're like this. 
that's really revealing because the second time you watch it, there's certain lines that you, you can you can interpret in, in completely different ways. Like the first time I sat down to watch it and there's that opening sequence. Now, I have to be careful here because I've already been bleeped once this series. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mean, a very sexually explicit, explicit mm-hmm. opening sequence, basically. And that immediately sort of set up certain expectations mm-hmm. about what it was going to be. But then when you watch it through the second time, knowing where you're going you realise that this sort of unvarnished sexual frankness, it's setting up a real sort of thematic crux for the whole series, and it's not just shock value. Uh, It becomes vital to the whole tone and plot. And so, like, there's there's little lines here and there that the first time round, I thought, in certain contexts, that might be a little bit tasteless. But then you go back... uh, One one I'm thinking of particularly is when they go on the retreat and Claire says to Fleabag we're going to get raped and killed here, and Fleabag says, every cloud. And I thought, the first time I was like, ooh, that's a little bit... Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but it's, then it's, it's very much on the edge, and if you get that wrong, yeah, yeah, you've got absolutely. it really wrong. With, char- with that character, I think it works, but also, going back to it, the second time, I also thought, well, given the, the emotional state she's in, mm. what is she referring to as the silver lining? Mm. Is it that that you get killed? That mm. is the silver line, and so yeah, she just wants to wants it all over. Yeah, she? so that it's kind of a, it's mm. it's a, it's something that seems the first time round almost on the edge of shock humor, and the second time round it seems multi layered and yeah. quite clever. Mm. I think as you mentioned there, Andy, the, the first three minutes, and it's in the first three minutes that you get that completely hilarious gag, and I think if you if you watch that. Uh, it's quite, it's quite a good. It's, it's like a stand-up's first, first joke, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. You know, when you go and you think, right, okay, you start with your best gag, and it, if you're not going to like that, you're not going to like this stand-up. <laughs> if you're not going to like that, you're not going to like this series. So there you go. I mean, that's it. You know, hopefully there'd have been some Daily Mail readers, you know, um, t- turning off <laughs> yeah. at that point mm. or writing letters. <laughs> <laughs> no, you see, I, I mean, I, I genuinely, I genuinely didn't see it coming at all I think I the same, same reaction of you and I suppose that this can only be a, a question for you then Rachel sorry Andy <laughs> but did you then feel differently about Fleabag did you you know is it, if, 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 if you're taking on perhaps a little bit of a Boo persona here or you recognise something in Boo um, with, with that level of um, betrayal you know how, how did that did that change your mind about Fleabag bearing in mind we've, we've been on her side all the way through this mm, no I was still on her side I did the Boo thing because I genuinely think <laughs> Because Boo was all about people can make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And as much as she was hurt, I know, I feel confident, would after some time have forgiven Fleabag for what she did. She understood about better than anybody. She understood Fleabag so, so well. She knew how much Fleabag hated herself. If I was Boo, and I feel like I am, <laughs> after some time, my friendship with, that, with Fleabag would have been more important than that particular incident and that event. We would have got over it. And I think Fleabag, is, you know, she's lost her mother. She's got this god-awful stepmother. She's got a strange relationship with her sister. She hates herself. She only views herself as a sexual object. That's the only value and worth she puts on herself is this body that she's been given. And, and she's so completely messed up that I could never lose full sympathy with her. And the fact that Martin exploited that in order to convince his wife to stay with mm, him. Yeah. I, the person I hated the most was him. I, I couldn't hate her or dislike her or turn against her at that point. I just, I felt so angry with him because he wasn't just ruining his wife's life, but also putting this bridge between the sisters again, yeah. which they were going to have trouble breaking down. I just, I didn't have enough dislike in me for everybody, so I gave it all to him. Mm. Did you feel that the, the statue that gets passed around was kind of symbolic of 
I mean, th- this was created by the stepmother and it was mm. a, a woman's torso, but with the head and the limbs cut off. Yeah. And the way it's it's passed around, I mean, Fleabag steals it to start off with, so that's kind of her reclaiming it. But then it goes through various different people, doesn't it, mm. throughout the, the series. And there's, there's something there about gender and power shifts. And I think it, it's alluded to once quite uh, openly when there's a line about well, if you if you cut a woman's limbs off, all she's going to do is roll around, and uh, I think that that was that was a very clever thing, which I missed completely the first time mm. I watched it, and then started to think about it a bit more the second time. Mm. And it's also the the first first time that we see that Martin is a betrayer because he wasn't meant to give that to his wife as a present, no. you know. And you thought, oh, that's that's not right, and so immediately you're on guard. Now I, he was an intensely dislikable character. Really awful, really manipulative, mm. especially because he was going to ruin that, you know, ruin Claire's life. Yeah. I really wanted her to leave him and go to go to Finland. I applauded. I actually physically applauded oh. when she said she was going to leave. I was like, yes, fantastic. <laughs> and I was so gutted when she came and, oh, oh, no, well, I'm not going to. But I did get the feeling that she was almost not quite believing Martin. But he was sort of stood next to her and I felt, I don't think you're 100% convinced about this. But she was just, she just couldn't do it. She didn't have the strength yeah. to just you know, break away, which was a real, real shame. And I'm sure it happens a lot. Mm. Yeah, again, that's what would happen Mm. in real life, isn't it? Or, you know, sometimes would happen. Um, So let's bring Hugh Dennis back in. Let's haul him back in and talk Mm. about when he brings his clipboard in at the end. I mean, this is it. This is the final, the final sort of setup. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was, you know, quite magical. And again, I mean, you talk about crying, you know, you're crying through it. You think, right, okay, yeah, that that had me going. It's like, right, okay, you know, the, the, there's going to be a bit of uh, last, a bit of light on the uh, on the subject now. No, absolutely, it was it was really rather beautiful, and which is strange for you, having grown up with the Mary Whitehouse experience. Beautiful and Hugh Dennis don't really go together, <laughs> but they do now. It's that face of his actually as well, so sympathetic, and the way he looked at her, and he when he went, when he walked out, I thought fair enough, that's quite a lot to put on someone, <laughs> and then he walked back in, I thought oh, oh he's come back in, oh my god, <laughs> and my heart leapt, it actually leapt in my chest, like, oh, somebody's going to help her. And uh, I just felt like somebody had to help this woman. Like, nobody was going to help her. The only person that could have helped her was dead. And I thought, well, two people that could help her, mum and boo. And they weren't there and they couldn't do it. And Claire wasn't going to do it. I thought, somebody's got to. And it was almost like he was a little, like a little angel that kind of came in at the end. And, oh, I was so relieved. There was a, oh, thank God, somebody's going to help this woman out. Yeah, because given the nature of the series, you thought it could have easily gone for a really down ending, couldn't it? And I think that ending is so perfect that Mm. I'm a little bit disappointed there's going to be another series. Same here. Yeah, me too. When I I, I read about this, and we, we talked about it in the introduction as well, and it's... It's on the cards. I mean, from what I've seen, I don't know what you've seen. It's just a case of like if they if they can find the right if they, if they, if they get the script right, if they get the yeah. writing right, then they'll they'll do it. And I, I agree. I agree with you. And I'm full of trepidation for it because I think what they've got is perfect. And it's a case of you know and you're right about the ending as well. And you're scared that they'll mess it up. However, you know, I mean, let's let's put you know we, we've all enjoyed what they've got so far. Yeah. So you know, let's uh, let's see because I mean, if if we I mean a lot of the time we like to look beyond. What went on? So I mean, you know, so what what goes on in Fleabag's life now? I mean, like you know, she gets a cafe where she can continue charging twenty five pounds for a sandwich. <laughs> London, and with, and with Hillary, obviously Hillary yeah. the guinea pig, which yeah. is the best name for a guinea pig ever. I have a lot of faith in Phoebe Waller Bridge's writing. Mm. Now I went back and watched her previous series, Crashing, after seeing this, and that was really good. It was a bit more. 
sitcom. It was a, a Channel 4 thing and it was ve- it, the setup was very sort of 21st century Channel 4 sitcom. It was like a group of 20-somethings in a communal living space. But what she did with, with that, she took it to some really unexpected places and it was it was not like remotely as dark as this, but you could still see that growing talent and that sort of that flair for doing the unexpected, which really uh, just is what manifested itself in here so perfectly. Would you like to see the play of this, do you think? Do you know, it's the first thing I wanted to do, because I I really like a a one-woman or one-man play. I really like that. Not Educate Me, Shirley Valentine was a one-woman play. And um, I did see that, and that was stunning. I love that somebody can get across a whole story just in one big monologue. And she's so wonderful, and I've said captivating already, but told you I'm in love with her and mm-hmm. um, and I would love to just watch her just doing her one yeah. woman thing she would be absolutely fantastic it'd be breathtaking I'm sure okay right so let's get to the rating of this thing um simply is it BBC3 or ITV3 <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'll need answering no that, no. no no I, get that, no. <laughs> I almost I almost didn't write one for this I thought well it's going to be obvious <laughs> uh, but you know there, there's something and then I came up with that I was really chuffed with it Oh, well, it's BBC Three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, yeah. let's give you the answer. Oh. BBC Three. Well, <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> thanks, guys. Um, and I, I, I think it also needs pointing out. I'd, I'd really like to thank you both for, for sharing so much as well in this uh, in this particular episode. I, I think it really adds to it. And I think if we can, you know, as, as we do, I mean, we as a group of people, we generally talk about mental health quite a lot anyway. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, for us to do it over microphones, I think uh, can can hopefully. Um, bridge some gaps okay uh, thanks for listening thanks to Johnny our producer and as ever we will leave you with the genial Andy Goulding the flea is a tiny parasite that lives in canine hair and causes irritation for the whole time that it's there the flea lives for about a year which may not sound like long but readjust for dog years and you'll realise that you're wrong we must conclude a dog's life can be something of a bitch encounters with a flea can be the seven year itch You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can do so via our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us by simply telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show or writing a nice review on iTunes. That's all there is. Next time on Spoiler, we're taking a look at the dystopian sci-fi thriller Children of Men. Very odd. What happens in the world without children's voices? If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. I'm finishing. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Oh. Are, you, are you done? Oh, yeah. They just want girls. They want to have fun. Oh, girls.
massive asshole. 